Welcome to The Resilient Surgeon, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. Our goal with the Resilient Surgeon series is to inspire our colleagues to be their best selves in and out of the operating room using scientifically proven tools and recovery strategies of the world's top performers. I'm Dr. Michael Mattis, and in each episode, I will talk to game changers, some of the world's top executive coaches, psychologists, an ex-Navy SEAL officer, and physician scientists who will share evidence-based practices, real-world strategies, and their own personal stories and experiences to help you build your resilience and to help you be your best self no matter what. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Our guest this week on the Resilient Surgeon Podcast is Steve Magnus, and the topic is, to put it simply, how to be tough and help others be tough with compassion, connection, and humanity, and without the usual hard-ass bravado that we so often conflate incorrectly with high performance. Steve Magnus is a world-renowned expert on performance, and he is the author of the recently released book, Do Hard Things why we get resilience wrong and the surprising science of real toughness, which is the topic of today's conversation. Steve is also the co-author of the best-selling books, Peak Performance and The Passion Paradox, and the sole author of The Science of Running. And he is the co-host of two podcasts, The Growth Equation Podcast with Brad Stulberg, who is a guest of ours this season, and on The Coaching Podcast with John Marcus. Steve's writing and work has been featured worldwide in Runner's World, Sports Illustrated, The New Yorker, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, and Men's Health. And he has served as a consultant and speaker for NASA, the Houston Rockets, the Brooklyn Nets, Cleveland Guardians, the Seattle Sounders, and the New Orleans Pelicans, to name a few, and many other professional athletic organizations. And Steve is one of the most sought out professional athletic coaches in the world. Steve's groundbreaking work, breaking down the myth of what real toughness is and how to develop it, is a major paradigm shift in how we look at the science of high performance. And in my opinion, his work should serve as a blueprint for how we develop real toughness and resilience in ourselves as cardiothoracic surgeons and in the training of our residents who are the future of our specialty. But don't just take my word for it. As Malcolm Gladwell says, and I quote, In Do Hard Things, Steve Magnus beautifully and persuasively reimagines our understanding of toughness. This is a must read for parents and coaches and anyone else looking to prepare for life's biggest challenges. And David Epstein, the best-selling author of Range and the Sports Gene says, and I quote, for too long, we have lauded stories of coaches and leaders who practice the weed out school of toughness. That is to subject a bunch of people to something unpleasant and those who survive must become high performers because of it. While those stories have grown in prominence, the body of scientific research has grown in a different direction, indicating that fortitude is not a trait that magically grows under extreme duress, but rather a skill that can surely and slowly be cultivated. And finally, Cal Newport says the following, Steve delivers a critical message for our current age of posing and performance. Real toughness is not about callous bravado, but instead about the ability to navigate difficulty with grace and an unwavering focus on what matters. As cardiothoracic surgeons, we demand the application of best scientific practices in the care of our patients. In a similar vein, We need to demand the application of best practices for developing real resilience and toughness in ourselves and in our trainees. Steve is here today to shed light on these best practices. So as always, sit back, take it in with an open mind, and learn from one of the world's best. The program will return after a message from our sponsor. Hi, 
I'm Dr. Ara Vaporjan. I'm so excited to share news about the new STS cardiothoracic surgery ebook. It is the most complete and authoritative online resource of cardiothoracic surgical information available anywhere in the world. And it was authored and edited by the specialty's leading experts. This ebook provides a rich multimedia educational experience that includes regularly updated content in both cardiac and general thoracic surgery. So no more waiting for the textbook publishers to issue a new version every few years. We use the ebook in my training program, and the residents love the high-quality illustrations, photos, and surgical videos. The new ebook is available online or through a mobile app, so that it's available in the office, at home, or at any point of care 24-7. To see a sample and learn more about the STS Cardiothoracic Surgery ebook, go to sts.org slash ebook. Well, I'm here today with Steve Magnus, the author of Do Hard Things. And it's a real honor and a delight to have you with us uh, today, Steve. And, and thank you so much for being on The Resilient Surgeon. Oh, thanks so much, Michael, for having me. I'm excited to uh, chat with you. Good. You know, uh, your book recently released, Do Hard Things, uh, it's a fabulous combination of, of science, of stories of other people, and in particular of your own personal experiences as an elite runner and extensive years of coaching and working with individuals doing hard things. And, you know, your book is, it's called Do Hard Things. And, but it, what it's really about is toughness is it, and resilience. Is, it, is that an accurate statement? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think yeah. uh, you're spot on there. Okay. And what it does, it, it really brings in so many different arenas of psychology and sports psychology and sports performance. And you, you create this really new pl level playing field for how we should go about and think about doing very hard things and how to be tough in life. And what, what I'd love to start with in our conversation is is the why. I mean, why did you write this book, right? What was the impetus to write it? And I know, of course, there's a long backstory to that, but I, I think I would love to hear you talk about a master narrative, you know, in the book and what led you to challenge that? What is that master narrative and what is the sequence of, or the concatenation of life events that led you to challenge that master narrative and write this book? Yeah, absolutely. That's a big question. So let's dive into it. Um, Good. So, you know, the master narrative, let's start there, is yeah. this old school kind of idea that was very prevalent when I was, you know, uh, growing up as an athlete and then even as a coach, which was, you know, we need to be tough. And how do you be tough? You kind of put your head down you grind through things, you don't pay attention to like any emotions, you ignore those over here, you just push through the pain and almost like bulldoze through whatever problem or difficulty arises. And the tough among us do that. And then from a coaching standpoint, it's, it was, how do you develop that? Well, you throw people into the fire and try and mm -hmm. see if they survive. And if mm -hmm. they survive, then they're, they're tough. And <laughs> That has been the narrative, especially in sport, but also in other areas of life for decades. And I've always kind of wrestled with this, but to give your listeners ideas, I was a very good um, high school runner. So my sport was track and field. I loved all sorts of other sports, played them all, but ended up in, in running because I was good at it. Mm -hmm. And I got really good really quickly. So by the time I graduated high school, I was the number one miler in the country for high schoolers and ran a four minute and one second mile. So I'd always, what is running, but being alone in your head and figuring out how to navigate like yes. discomfort, yeah. pain, fatigue, and, you know, having these thoughts often of like, you know, should I slow down? Should I quit? And like having to navigate through them. And traditionally we were taught well, you just kind of put your head down and push through. And what I quickly realized in my own running is that that worked occasionally. But more often than not, I would dig down. I would say, oh, it's time to push through. And you'd say you'd put your head down and it wouldn't work. It would backfire. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. You you dig down and you'd be like, oh, there's nothing there. But you still had to figure out how to navigate that discomfort. Yeah. So as an athlete, I was already thinking about these things and saying, okay, well, there must be more tools here. And then as I got into coaching, that kind of expanded. And then more so, I think in the in my non-athletic life, is I was faced with a series of challenges. Um predominantly around, you know, in the coaching world, I, I experienced, or I found, I was a part of a whistleblowing thing where essentially what happened is I saw wrongdoing in sport, you know, people crossing ethical boundaries reported it. And then for nine years of my life had to go through investigations, you know, media scrutiny, you know, arbitrations and just, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, a very difficult situation. And my natural instinct at first was like, oh, I'm tough. I'm just going to like compartmentalize everything and just kind of push through. And that didn't work because, as I said, it lasted for nine years. Uh So I had to figure out again, okay, well, how do I navigate this in a different way? So the genesis of this book and why I, you know, took on this topic of toughness is resilience is because I've been thinking about it. And trying to figure it out for a very long, a long time. time. Yeah. Yeah. And I've had all these ideas from both sport and life and then others experience of athletes and executives and physicians I've worked with and coaching um, who have gone through similar ideas. So to me, it was about unpacking this and saying, well, are we doing, uh, do we have this model just because we've had this model for a very long time and we're going to continue mm-hmm. doing this? Mm-hmm. Or is there a better way for us to approach challenging times, challenging situations that more aligns with uh, what the research says in the modern understanding of psychology that can maybe uh, help us get through those those items in a way that you know, doesn't just give us a hammer and tell us to like beat on the wall until it breaks. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. And that, you know, what you're talking about, of course, is the Nike Oregon project and, and, and right in that story, uh, you know, are those kinds of paradigms, you know, the master narrative. I mean, it's, it's all right there. It's a, it's an incredible story and your, your courage in dealing with that is, is extraordinary. And again, my hat's off to you for all that work. Well, yeah. I, I appreciate that. And one thing I would say on that is, you know, um, it did take a lot of courage. But I think, again, the idea of courage is often people say like, oh, look how courageous you are. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, yes. But like, I did a lot of things in there that like, weren't courageous, or I didn't step up, it took mm-hmm. like time mm-hmm. and energy and effort, and even coming to terms with like the reality of the situation where I was to get to that point where I even blew the whistle or to go through yes. the whole whistleblowing yeah. process. And I think often what happens is in these kind of master narratives we're talking about, we simplify things so much that we say, oh, you're either courageous or not. And it's like, no, life is messy. Yes. And difficult things in particularly are really messy. Really messy. Yeah. And I think a part of, you know, which we'll get into this, what I try and get across in the book on toughness is resilience is um, it's messy and complicated. And you're going to have like no one goes through and, and, and thinks like, oh, I'm never going to have doubts or insecurities or think about quitting or what have you. That's part of being a human. So yes. instead of instead of like ignoring that part of being a human, let's embrace it and accept that we're all going to have this messiness and figure out how best to, to kind of navigate through that messiness. And that's what this book is all about, is working with our humanity. In my opinion, it's literally about working with the the fact that we are human. And, you know, one of the challenges in the world of cardiothoracic surgery is, at least in my opinion, um, is that we tend to see ourselves as cardiothoracic surgeons first and humans as almost a secondary phenomenon. And I suspect that's true in the athletic world where your your identity gets so attached to uh, your endeavor, you know? And, uh, And so one of my goals is to make our specialty more human and bring our humanity to it. And that's why one of the reasons I'm so happy to have you on the podcast because it's such an important step forward 
in that arena. You know, on, on my own, in my own way of thinking about this, uh, you know, in surgical training, I, I like to refer to a hidden curriculum that's part of the surgical training where we're inculcated with, you know, four or five new habits. One, say yes to everything. Two, be disciplined uh, no matter what. Three, uh, be strong, pretend you're okay even when you're not. And then self-sufficiency. I can manage all this on my own. And in my case, that led to me uh, at around 55 years old, lying in bed, wanting to cry uh, because I didn't understand what was wrong with me. I was miserable. Um, and I, I truly, the only tools I had were those. And I kept thinking, you know, I need to buck up and get tougher and, and just power through this. And that did not work. Categorically, I had reached the end of the, the game with those habits, you know, and I think this is the, the crucial uh, message here that that stuff, that sort of binary black and white, just be, just be strong. Don't be afraid. Uh, it's got its limits. It's got its serious limits. It, exactly. And, you know, you, as I said, you see this across domains and where you yeah. generally see it is in, in avenues, whether it's athletics or surgery or military where people are high performers mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and they're exactly. very, they're very good at what they do. And because of that, they had, they often hold on to these ideas. Like you just said, those, those pillars there is like, well, I need to buck up. It's up to me. Like it's up to my individual self. I need to get stronger. I can't admit any sort of weakness right. And where, the, where this really came clear that this was kind of the wrong path is actually the, the place where we often go to kind of like ingrain and cement this, which is in military high performers. Right. Right. Because we often think, Oh, this is what they do. They just, you know, push through everything. But when I talk to, you know, Navy SEALs, Green Berets, special forces, they actually learn to do the opposite as one, you know, military operator told me, he said, you know, you think that we go into these operations or these extreme simulations where they just kind of drop you off in the woods and, and tell you to survive. You think that we go into it as like, oh, I'm confident. I got this. This is no problem. Like I, I am like the best of the best. So I have it. But he told me it's like the people who go into that, the idea like that or the stressful situation are often the ones who fail. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's the ones, the operators who go in and say, you know what, here's realistically what I'm facing. Here is the reality of the situation where I might feel like I want to quit or I might go through this struggle. And they almost have a little bit of doubt. In fact, one told me, and I'll never forget this quote, is he said, you know, for me, a little bit of doubt is a great thing because mm -hmm. that doubt keeps me sharp. Sharp, yeah. If yeah. I if I don't embrace that doubt a little bit, then what happens is I get I almost get like this this confident complacency where I just think I have it and I miss things that I should pick up. And that, go ahead. That's a perfect example of what you talk about in terms of a, a, a scale from bravado and excessive confidence, uh, which is most often false to stark insecurity, you know, and it's that, that middle ground. And, and that's what your book is all about is the middle ground and, and, and using these things appropriately. Yeah, exactly. It's that, yeah. that, that nuance. And I think, nuance. Too often, I think too often we get to the extremes and the extremes, for example, of that, that, oh, we need to be confident all the time or project this bravado or what happens what happens is that just sets us up for unrealistic uh, situations yeah. because again, in military and sport, they kind of described it as lists is like, if I go in with all this, let's say pumping myself up and external bravado, and I'm trying to convince myself that I'm a hundred percent assured, what happens when I get in that really difficult moment where I'm not quite sure where it's going to push my limits of my expertise or my skill. Well, my brain often goes from 100 to zero where it says, oh, I thought you had this figured out. What's the deal? And you almost set yourself up for this exaggerated stress response because you went in with the expectation of certainty 
And that's just not realistic. It's not realistic. Yeah. And the brain reacts to that. Yeah. It, it, this exactly. Is a, this is a key takeaway message in your book, I, I have to admit. You know, I think it would be very useful to talk about Paul Bear Bryant and that story. And then also about um, the military, which you alluded to, sorting versus developing. You know, I, I think they provide, you know, opposite ends of the spectrum. And the misguided notion we have about the military, you know, we see about the SEALs and Hell Week and all that stuff. And, and we're missing the bigger picture here. So if you could kind of go through that, I, I think it'd be very helpful to illustrate this stuff. Absolutely. So I love these stories. Um, so I'm glad I get to tell them again, which is, you know, the Paul Bear Bryant, yeah. you know, Paul Bear Bryant one is, is, um, is this is before he went on to great success at, at Alabama as the football coach, as he's known. Uh, for a while, he went to Texas A&M. Okay. And at that time, it was 1950s, Texas A&M was like a Cowtown college. So he essentially said, I need to turn this, this, this program around. So the first thing he does is he has this, this camp in Junction, Texas, which is the middle of nowhere. And this camp becomes famous in lore and football. There's been a ESPN movie books about it where essentially he puts athletes through hell and, you know, just runs them into the ground. The famous saying is, you know, one of the football players said, we went there on, on two buses. We came back on one because mm -hmm. so many people quit. And the popular lore is this, is that that led them to have success is that this camp, like, you know, propelled AM and Paul Bear Bryant into, you know, winning. And, and that was what it is because they made them tougher and the strongest survived. But the reality is this, is that year after the camp, they went something like one in nine. They were horrible. It wasn't until a couple years later where they did have success. And when you looked at a couple years later, only, I think, if I remember correctly, seven or eight of the players who were left on the team were, went through the camp. The vast majority of players were athletes who didn't go or were new and better recruits. The other interesting thing is this, is we tell this story of, oh, the camp made you know people survive and the strongest survive and they became the tough athlete. Well, there were two things wrong with that. If you look at why the players said they survived that stuck around, a majority of them kind of had the same conclusion, which is I had no other option. It was, it was either stay on this team or go back home, you know, drop out of college and work on the fields. This was right. again the 1950s. Right. And then the other thing is if you look at the players who quote unquote quit and often are said as like, oh, they weren't tough enough. What you see is they had options and they executed those options. And many of them went on to do great things. Several went on to play in the NFL. Others, yeah. others went on to, um, you know, help the, the college. They became baseball players and helped the college win conference championships. You know, there were mm -hmm. a couple who went on into the military, one who became a little literal war hero. So I think, again, these stories we have of like, oh, do crazy tough things and the strong will survive and those will be your, you, you know, your heroes or what have you isn't the case the stories don't reflect reality and i think to to kind of complement that is you see that same sort of narrative applied when we look at our kind of popular consideration of military we look at you know the navy seals hell week and we say look what they do mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like they go through this crazy difficult time and you know that makes them tougher and this is how we develop and then in sport and even in business, we bring in, you know, former military yes. guys and, and yeah. do like simulated, you know, dialed down hell weeks, you know, boot camp style stuff. And right. we think this right. is what's going to bring unity and toughness to our team. But what we're doing there is we're mistaking sorting for development. So the military doesn't use hell week as a development exercise. What it does is it says, hey, we've got to figure out a little bit on like, what you guys have and if you can handle the rigors of what you're going to face in war and being a Navy SEAL. So we're going to put you through this, this kind of test. 
And it allows for this kind of sorting because they can't just accept everybody. It's right. almost like the, the SAT of the military, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're going to say, oh, kind of, do you have the basic, you know, ingredients to make it in college? And if you do, we'll, we'll take you. But it isn't the, the development phase. And that's where we've mistaken it as, hey, put people through crazy difficult things and they'll develop. If you look at how the military actually develops resilience, toughness, they are the nation's largest employer of sports psychologists for a reason. Because just, you, just let's say that again. This, they are, just let's say that yeah. again. This they so are, yeah. yeah, they are the nation's, the U.S.'s largest employer of sports psychologists. Okay. So that's how deep they're into this. Yeah. Yes. And if you look yeah. at, you know, the research that has come out of this, a lot of it is from sports psychologists working with the military. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is teaching the skills to do difficult things. What do we mean by that? It it means teaching them how to develop confidence, teaching the the coping skills to be able to, you know, uh, deal with and cope with emotions and, you know, negative thoughts and all this stuff, teaching them self-efficacy, all of these basic skills that are, you know, we attribute to often performance in sports psychology which are foundational to the military. And right. if you look if you look at actually how they do this it's pretty simple. It's first they teach the skill. So they have classroom settings, they have meetings with sports psychologists, they have powerpoints galore of like hey, this is how you cope and deal with all these difficult things. Here's the reality mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. situation. Mm-hmm. And then they do use some like hey, we're going to put you through simulated difficult situations, survival. And then they, they, they go through and then they have reviews of, okay, here's what you did wrong. Here's what you did better because it's teaching and training, teaching it's, and training. Yes. It's not throw you into hammering. the deep. Yes. It's yeah. not hammering. It's not throw you into the deep end, hoping you survive. It's knowing we have to develop these people and all of them have the capacity to get better. You're not just born with this skill or not. Yeah. We, we can develop it. So it's focused on that development aspect. And we miss that lesson so much. And I, I really firmly believe that so much of this is so critical in training our future cardiothoracic surgeons. And, and it, you know, like I said, when I went through training, and I still think it exists to a large extent, because the culture takes a long time to change, but it's this sort of hidden curriculum of how you deal with things, you know, and, you know, the various habits that I've talked about and, and, and that still is there. I, I know it for a fact. I mean, I coach physicians and surgeons and, and I talk to residents and I'm engaged with them. And, you know, this, this stuff is still there and, and they're not taught like these principles that are in your book that you've derived from so many resources. It, exactly. And I think, you know, surgery is a great example because, to me, it's a lot like elite military operators. Why? Exactly. You're, yeah. you're in a stressful environment, right? It is like, you know, someone is dependent on you being executing uh, correctly right. on things. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it's high stakes as well. And we know when we're in those environments, what happens? We have a stress response, which can either help us or hinder us, but often makes it, you know, where... You know, when, when we're under stress, everything is heightened, right? The emotions, the experience, our, our vision and attention narrow. And as, again, one military operator told me is like, you essentially have to keep your mind on straight and your head on, you know, mind mm-hmm. steady and your head mm-hmm. on straight while you're executing these things, right? Someone, one told me who was a, a helicopter pilot who essentially said, you know, when we're getting fired at, we have to understand how to keep our cool. Yeah. And in, in, in a lot of ways that is similar to surgery. Mm-hmm. And I think when I think of surgeons, again, I'm not an expert in this area, but I think of, okay, what do we want to do? Do we want to give people the skill set to where they have a wide variety of tools to pull from so that they can keep their head on straight when they're in these stressful environments? Or do we want to just kind of rely on old school instead of the latest psychology and science and just say, you know what, you just got to ignore everything and press through. You got to cope. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. When, when sometimes that's not going to work. So yeah. like give people the skills. 
Yeah, yeah. And again, just to emphasize, that's what the military does. They give them the skills for an incredibly difficult uh, environment and it, challenge. Yeah, it, exactly. And actually, you know, maybe a decade ago, there was a wonderful kind of research study that summarized, well, what does the military have to do to help people perform? And the conclusion was basically what we've just talked about, which is we need to make sure people have the skills before they go out into, you know, the battlefield or that, that stress yeah. environment. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it really is as simple as that. And that's why they emphasize it so much, but we often, you know, in other aspects of life, you know, the way I like to summarize it is we have the, in our heads, we have the, the kind of 1940s world war II version of the military that we're copying instead mm -hmm, of, mm -hmm. instead of the mm -hmm. 2022 version of the military that is actually advanced and like embraced the latest psychology. Yeah. You know, and the, the appeal of, you know, the bear Bryant thing or, uh, like hammering somebody and saying, you know, buck up, get more discipline, be strong, is that it, it feels to me anyway, like, and, and, or even being angry with somebody, you know, I mean, just yelling or something or dictating what they're supposed to do. It feels action oriented, you know, and it, it feels like there's a potential response on the other end and you've dealt with something, but in fact, it's what, what would you call it? It's a, what, what did you, it's a smoke screen, a smoke screen. That's it. Yeah. Do you, do you want to, you have a comment on that or thought around that? Yeah, you know? yeah, no, I think you're spot on. And I think that's also why it sticks around because as the leader or the teacher, as a coach, it, it, it gives us the appearance that we're doing something right without actually doing something. You know, the, the analogy I would give is, you know, if a teacher walks into a classroom and someone is struggling with math, if they just, if that teacher just yelled at them and said, you got to be tougher and keep pushing through these math problems, even if the kid had no idea how to, how to, you know, do the, mm -hmm, the steps mm -hmm. he needed, would we look at that teacher and be like, oh, you're being effective? No. Of, of course not. We'd be like, you, you got to teach them the skills. And of course they need to struggle, but you've got to teach them how to do this so that they can they can get to that next step and i think the what the research and science shows is is very clear and actually maybe to make this crystallize for listeners is there's been a lot of of research in the world of psychology that looks at this kind of you know dictator yelling style of teaching or learning or leading mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and what it essentially shows is that for the person, the student, or the, you know, underling who's, who's learning, is it, is it backfires? Is it teaches, is it decreases the level of resilience, toughness, discipline, and learning that occurs? Because it essentially puts that, that student in a situation where they're just trying to survive and not get yelled at instead of learn, adapt, and grow. Mm -hmm. Because if anything, again, from decades of work in teaching, learning psychology, it shows us that if we're constantly in a state of threat and fear and worrying about you know, what will happen if we do something wrong or mess up, that's not the optimal environment to learn in. It's, it's essentially like telling someone, you know, an athlete, who's struggling with, with maybe choking or underperformance and, and thinking the solution is yelling at them and that will solve things. Well, it doesn't, it backfires. And that applies to other avenues as well. Yeah, that's, it's so true. And the, the challenge, this is for me personally too, to shift my thinking around this. It took me going to meditation retreats and self-compassion retreats and that because human brains make associations galore, you know, and, you know, so in my training, well, it worked for me, it made me a good surgeon. So I've got these profound years of association that led me into, you know, becoming a competent surgeon, but that, that doesn't mean that that was the best way to do it. 
Exactly. And I think, you know, maybe I'm going to go back to the sports analogy because I think this works. But if you look at successful coaches, for example, because they're successful, what we often think is that, oh, that means they're doing everything right and we need to right. copy them 100 percent. Exactly. Yeah. But that's not how it works. So take, you know, an example I use in the book, which is Bobby Knight, who is very successful as a coach but also known as someone who lost his temper and ultimately got fired because he, he choked someone. Yeah. You know, choked yeah, an athlete. yeah. Yeah. And people point to Bobby Knight and be like, look, he's successful with this way. And the, the basketball people, you know, who really know basketball, like, you know, uh, people in the NBA and coaches at the high level, they'll tell me Bobby Knight was successful because he was a basketball genius in terms mm -hmm. of his plays, mm -hmm. his defensive mm -hmm. structures and all that stuff. That's what made him good. The interpersonal skills of yelling at athletes and like this extreme, that probably backfired on him. Like yeah. it didn't make him yeah. a better coach, but his basketball IQ was good enough where that compensated enough where he kind of got away with it for a while and still was able to win, especially early in his career. And I think we make that same mistakes as, as well as we attribute when we have success, we think, oh, everything I'm doing is contributing to this. Well, right. the reality is we're, if we're successful, you know, probably, I don't know, 70 to 80% of what we're doing is helping us, but there's still maybe 20% of it that we're, we're, we're doing wrong or backfiring. And we know this, we can look back in history at maybe mentors or, you know, physicians in the seventies or sixties or what have you, who were really world renowned and did, did things, you know, very well and were successful. But now through, you know, decades of learning afterwards, we can look and we're like, oh man, what they did here or that style, like that was the wrong path, but they were really yeah. good. Yeah. And that's going to be the same for us. Like there are some things that we're doing right now that, you know, aren't correct. And I think this kind of old school model of developing toughness is, is one of those things. Yeah. And, you know, when I was in my general surgical residency, that was certainly more of the paradigm is this this toughness thing the old model the master narrative but when i got to toronto and i started training in thoracic surgery you know my mentors there it was a very different world and they really took me under their wing and treated me as a human being and my god did i rise to that i mean the the the, ex, the experience of that time in my life emotionally cognitively everything it stands in stark contrast uh, to the previous, you know, training, uh, you know, in general surgery. So it, it's really remarkable. And I, I think you talk about Pete Carroll, you know, the coach and, and him as an example of somebody that can hold such high standards, but yet understands these things. You want to just note anything about him that you think might be useful? Yeah, I think he's a great example because he holds this balance and nuance we're talking about often mm -hmm. when I present these ideas, people are saying, Oh, so we don't need to have high standards or expectations or what have you. And just let people, you know, do whatever. Kumbaya. Yeah. Kumbaya. I'm saying, no, it's still no. about doing difficult things. Yeah. yeah. Pete Carroll has this brilliant balance because his teams and his coaching styles is known for, he in fact calls it like always competing practices where they are pushing each other and competing and trying to, you know, get the best out of each other, but they do it knowing on the flip side that they, the athletes are supported, that they're mm -hmm. doing it at, in a way out of, we want to raise everybody up. We want to get the best out of everybody where we're not creating an environment of fear or punishment, right, but instead right. growth. And I think that's where this balancing act. And in fact, you know, the research that really got this, I think, brilliantly is actually in parenting. Uh -huh. This is another one I wanted to bring up. Yeah, yeah. which yeah. which if you look at parenting, we often think, well, how do you create, you know, uh, tough, disciplined kids is people will think, oh, it's the drill sergeant way, which research calls the authoritarian style, which is essentially they call it in research high demandingness. When you have high mm -hmm. demandingness mm -hmm. or expectations, people think you'll create this discipline child, well-behaved child. But the research shows that isn't the case. High authoritarian parents actually have kids who have 
you know, worse behavior problems and less emotional control. And the reason is pretty simple is because that high demandingness, when it is not accompanied by what they call high levels of responsiveness, backfires. You need both. When you accompany high or moderate demandingness, which is essentially, you know, have some expectations on your children, like make or like give them some autonomy and all these things and don't like coddle them. But at the same time, responsiveness, which is um, responding to the, their needs, creating an environment where they feel secure to explore. Mm-hmm. When you do that, good things happen. So I think the same applies in coaching, the same applies in, in leading, the same applies in a, you know being a human, which is we can't, it's, it's not just this high authoritarian demandingness, is we have to have some level of responsiveness to couple with that so that we can allow people to be the best, you know, version of themselves that they can be. And the theme that keeps cropping up again and again and again is our need for connection and support from other human beings. Pete Carroll recognizes that. <clears throat> Alan Mullaly, the one of the most famous uh, CEOs in the world and one of the most successful who rescued Ford, his mantra was, you know, the highest level of expectations combined. And he says, you got to love them up. You're, you got to love your people up. And he meant that. I mean, it was, it was really true. And uh, he was a perfect example of holding those, what appear to be two disparate ideas relative to the master narrative and the magic that occurs when you combine those two things. You know, it, it really is that simple. And again, if you look at the psychology behind motivation, it says the same thing, which is how do we become more internally motivated? It's a sense of, you know, competency, meaning we can get better at things and make progress. Autonomy, meaning that we have a sense of control over our world environment, feel like we can make progress again. And then that last part, which is connection and belonging. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And if we feel connected and like we belong, guess what? We work harder. We're more motivated. We're more resilient because it's not just about us. It's about the, you know, everyone around us. And if we can feel that sense of connection and belonging, good things happen. I mean, it's one of the, uh, the former NFL general managers I talked to who won a Super Bowl um, a while back told me, you know, his job was to make sure that when he walked in the building, everyone in the building, from you know the 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 janitors to the ticket takers to the the star athletes to the people who were only on the practice squad they knew that they belonged on this team and in this organization and mm-hmm. that they all had a role and that some of our roles were yes to be the star but other roles were you know contributing in small ways to the entire and, enterprise yeah exactly yeah. and i yeah. think that that always stuck with me because it's like that really is a, a, what it's about is if you can feel that connection and belonging, people are gonna, are gonna, you know, work harder, be motivated and do great things. So part of being a leader is how do you cultivate that and really treat people as decent human beings? Absolutely. And, you know, one of the guests we had on the podcast is uh, Dr. Christine Porath, and she's a PhD and she's written two books, Mastering Civility and Mastering Community. And, it, and she really, she's got a business background and she goes through and clearly shows the case for uh, community and treating other, others with respect and belonging in a, in a business sense and how that affects the bottom line so profoundly. But, you know, this community thing in the world of cardiothoracic surgeons and physicians is a big deal because, you know, we used to have the doctor's dining room where people would gather and, and talk to each other. And that's kind of gone by the way. Now, you know, people will often eat in the front of the computer while they do the EMR and all these other things. And, and the modern world is invaded. So there's constant, you know, interruptions and things. So people are hustling through their days and they don't get a chance to really connect with each other. And there's this overwhelming sense of isolation by in the world of the physicians. And it's something that's uh, at a, at a crucial level, in my opinion. You know, I'm glad you brought up because I just want to comment on that real quickly because it's a real problem. And 
the if you look at the the data and research on well how do we how do we form this connection and belonging often it is in those in-between moments when you're having lunch with your colleagues or the water cooler chat or just chit chatting you know in between assignments or on breaks that actually is the glue that forms those connections and i think in the modern world you're right we've in the name of like efficiency or just because our phones are there or whatever have you we've kind of eliminated that and it's it's it does a big disservice to us yeah and i just want to really put a highlighter and bold and italicize this uh because you know you can say oh it's just more carping about phones and stuff but this is for real i mean this stuff is so desperately for real i have a surgeons group that i run in the twin cities here and, you know, these are busy surgeons and they show up every two weeks to this group. Uh, and this has been life changing for them. They have a place to talk about what's really going on in their lives, their challenges, their struggles. And often I can help them with some insights. But the, the real meat of the matter is the ability to just talk and be vulnerable and be real, which is a space that, you know, so few physicians really have, you know. Uh, it's it's been a really an eye-opening experience for me and for my surgeon colleagues. Yeah, that's wonderful. I think that's spot on, and that's a great way to to you know um, essentially address that issue. Is that it, right. it doesn't think take anything complicated, and it doesn't have to be you know every day or every week. It's no, it's just creating some that regular yes, space. Exactly, that yeah. regular space is what it's all about. Yeah. Well, you know. <laughs> we spent quite a bit of time going in the background now, but I, I would love to at least cover the four pillars in some form to give our listeners a sense of, you know, the content of the book. And of course, they can read the details and go through it. It's a beautifully written book. But if we could kind of cover the four pillars and the first, you know, I'm just going to read them so we can have them in context. The first pillar is ditch the facade and embrace reality. The second one is listen to your body. The third one is respond instead of react. And the fourth one is transcend discomfort. So if maybe you could kind of go through those and just give us a, a, a balcony view of each one, that'd be sure. great. Sure. I'll give you the high level view, which, all right, let's start with the first, which is ditch the facade, embrace reality. It actually mm -hmm. ties into something that we talked about a little earlier, which is um, confidence is about your appraisal of the thing in front of you versus your appraisal of your capabilities to handle it. Let me just uh, stop you there and say what I would, I would just add the following modifier, real confidence. Yes. Is Very about, true. okay. Yes. Yeah. And I learned that from you. <laughs> no, spot on. I, I, I love it. Uh, and, and the reason I like that, that framework is, and it's very validated, but what it tells you is that we need a realistic view of what we can do, what the task at hand is. We don't want to be the person who essentially, you know, signs up for the marathon and says, oh, I got this, no problem. And then, you know, halfway through, through gets smacked in the face with the reality of the situation right, that we're right, handling. Right. In difficult situations, we got to know what we're facing and what we can do. So that's, that's kind of what it is, is it's about accepting of that and then finding that real space instead of going in with this kind of fake external bravado that we talked about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the second pillar is listen to your body, which again, if you remember at the beginning, we talked about a lot of, you know, the old school model is like, ignore the pain, ignore, you know, the fatigue, no crying in baseball, whatever you want to call it, no emotions. But the reality is the, the latest psychology tells us that we're going to experience those emotions, those thoughts, those doubts and insecurities anyways, and pushing them away often is a signal to our brain that like, oh, this is important. We should like pay attention to this even more. So it like brings them back, you know, 10x. So instead, what we have to learn is that like, how do we, we navigate and understand our emotions? and our thoughts and what it what the latest psychology essentially tells us is that our feelings and emotions are are communicators they're our way of our internal mechanisms essentially saying hey you know something is a little bit different here or this environment is a little bit strange and it just brings our awareness to us 
And it's up to us to decide and kind of sort through, well, is this something that is meaningful? Is this something I should let float on by? Or is this something that like, uh, you know, I'll just kind of take note of and, and move on from. So it's really learning how to use that um, with us. And the same goes with our, our inner voices or our self-talk is that we can use those kind of doubts or the self-talk around it. And we can kind of flip that on its head and like use that productively to allow us to get through difficult things. Yeah, Steve, on the emotion front, I just want to, I think this might be an experience that a lot of surgeons would have. And, uh, you know, when I, you, about 10 years ago, I mean, I had, I had a circumstance in my life where I was forced to kind of confront a lot of these sorts of things. And I used to kind of think, I, I disliked emotions greatly. I mean, I, I felt that they got in the way of most things, you know, and I, I really disliked show of emotion and that. And so, and, but I had kind of a, almost a binary world in, in terms of my understanding of my own emotions. One is I was either in a good mood or I was in a shitty mood. Right? <laughs> I mean, it almost, I mean, of course there's some subtlety to it, but really that's what it was kind of, kind of like for me. And when I had to face certain things, I actually, I, I went and drilled up a list of emotions a, a written list. And I, I went through them and I started training myself to identify when I'm having emotions. And I'm, I've become at least adept at it enough now. So if I start to feel anxious or something, I, it stops me and I pay attention to it. And, I'm, and I ask myself, what's going on here? Why are you feeling anxious? Because it will bubble up, for example, you know, and then I'm now I'm able to kind of pinpoint it and get, and get a handle on it. But I just, I think there's emotional, well, they call it obviously emotional intelligence and all that, but it, it's, it's really a skill, you know, uh, and it's not woo-woo. This stuff is not woo-woo. I mean, I, I, I feel so much better being dialed into that stuff. You know, there's no you, question about it. You know, absolutely. And I could sit here. I love that, that story. And you you did something that actually works very well and is research backed. And I could sit here and tell you all the research, but I think what really kind of encapsulated this and got this through in my head, because even I struggled with this at first is, you know, my wife is an elementary school teacher. And for a while, she taught kindergarten kids and first grade kids. And she, she one day said, you know, Steve, um, do you know why kids throw tantrums? And I was like, I have no idea. And she said, well, often it's pretty simple is they feel all sorts of emotions and it's foreign to them and they have no idea how to understand that inner world. So they freak out. And you know how you know this? You ask them what's wrong. And regardless of what happened, you know, for these young kids, they'll say like, I'm sad. And it could be, I'm sad because, you know, uh, I didn't yeah. get selected at, at kickball on recess or someone stole a pin or someone said something mean, but their emotional complexity is so small that they just call everything sad. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And because of that, they don't have the nuance to understand the different like feelings and emotions that mm -hmm, they're experiencing, mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. you said. And as they understand that inner world and if they learn and teach them, then they're able to split it apart and be like, oh, no, I'm not sad. I'm frustrated or I'm feeling jealous or I'm feeling lonely. And when you have that nuance, it allows you to deal with it. So in a lot of ways, a lot of us are kind of like that, that first grade kid where we just, you know, have that binary of like sad versus happy. Yes, we, for sure. When, when we really have to understand the nuance of like, no, it could be, you know, any number of, uh, of feelings and emotions and there's slight differences to all of them. Yeah. And um, the, uh, yeah, I think you made the analogy, if, correct me if I'm wrong to, you know, emotions are signals, right? Uh, but they're like a, flying an airplane, you know, you've got all these gauges uh, and they're indicating something. Why don't you expand on that? I think you'd be best to describe that. I mean, the, the, right. Am I, do I have this right? The analogy? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the way I, I kind of describe it in the book is the pilot analogy, which is you That's, have all, such a good analogy. Yeah, yeah. You have all, all, all these gauges and they're all kind of buzzing and beeping, 
Um, but what we want to know is, and they're all kind of drawing our attention. And your goal as a person is not to just get overwhelmed and be like, oh, all these things are buzzing and beeping. Your goal is to understand which ones are important in those moments and which ones to pay attention to and which exactly. ones maybe we can't. Like which one is actually, oh, this is the alarm that I need to focus on and this is how I turn this alarm off or fix yeah. this problem. Yeah. And yeah. our emotions often work in the same way. And to use the athletic example, I love to use this as a runner is I had to quickly understand when I felt, you know, pain or fatigue. Well, does that pain mean I'm potentially injuring myself or is it just like fatigue that is normal and I can work through and I have to like disseminate or distinguish those, those kind of different pains that are coming in or that pain could mean I'm low on energy and it's not because I'm, you know, tired necessarily, but I need to, you know, eat something or have a banana or whatever have you. So yeah. the, the yeah. same, same thing applies to our emotions is if we can distinguish what they are, then it allows us to be able to understand, well, what ones require action and what are those actions that I need to take? Yeah, it's brilliant. Uh, that, that analogy is just sensational to really put, put that into perspective, you know, and to, con to contextualize what's going on. Yeah. But first of all, you got to look at the damn dial. Exactly. The emotion is. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's almost like, you know, a lot of us are almost like blind. We can't read the, we can't yeah. read the, the, the labels on the dials. So we, we just all treat it the same. Well, again, it's kind of like, just let me fly the damn thing, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So that's the pillar two is listen to your body. Pillar three, respond instead of react. And, and you, you talk about burnout both for athletes and for many people, many of whom you coach on, on uh, you coach people outside of the world of athletics and that process of, uh, of, you know, responding instead of reacting. Can, what's, what's the story there? Yeah. So what often happens is, you know, when we feel stress, we react stress tends to narrow us mm -hmm. and our, and, and it's almost like a safety mechanism where our brain says, up like something is kind of crazy and pushing us outside of our kind of homeostasis normal kind of view so let's like pull us back so what happens is we end up reacting which means we just look for the quickest easiest way to eliminate like this stress and get us to kind of back to normal the problem is the quickest easiest way often isn't the best over the long term yeah. so it's almost like you know, True of so many things, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it, yeah, it's it's the same with kind of like hunger. Well, I yeah. feel hungry. Well, I could eat this candy bar in yeah. front of me, yeah. and that'll satisfy yeah. it, and yeah. that might be the quick, easy solution. But the reality is, I'm probably better off over the long haul eating something more nutritious and fulfilling. Yeah. Um, the same goes here, and I call that like responding versus reacting. We're responding is essentially how do I create the space to navigate this moment. Instead of just going straight from like, oh, I feel stressed or anxious to here's my quick solution. You know, you, you've used the word navigate many times now. And I, I, I just, I realize as we are talking how important that word is, because what you're really talking about is going from that binary, be tough, just do it, pound your way through it to navigation of hard things, of doing hard things, of developing toughness, you know, is, is that accurate? I mean, I love that theme. Yeah. yeah. You know, I'm glad you've caught up on that because I thought a long time of what, what the word to use to describe this and navigate works for me because to me, again, often when we're in difficult moments, there are a number of paths that we can take, right? But we often get narrowed and stuck on the one path, which is like, again, that hammer bulldozer. Mm -hmm. And instead, what I'm kind of trying to say is often there are a number of paths. We just have to open up our world to them. And then that that then we can figure out, OK, how do we work through or navigate through this? And that often leads us to the best outcome. Yeah, right, right. OK, so then <clears throat> the fourth pillar, transcend discomfort. Yeah. So this is often throughout, you know, the book and actually our ideas on toughness, we actually, we often think of it as an individual thing 
where we think, okay, it's just me, I'm, I'm doing it alone, et cetera, et cetera. But transcend discomfort really means two things to me, is that A, your environment matters a lot in allowing you to do difficult things. So if you have that environment that gives you the basic foundation to feel supported and secure so that you can you know, take appropriate risks and not be in this kind of fear of failure mindset, and then the other part of transcending discomfort that is really important is that our greater meaning and purpose around the thing allows us to handle difficult moments or, or stressful moments as well. So if you look at, you know, including the research on burnout is when we have a purpose or, me, or uh, meaning connected to our job or our work or whatever we're doing. It allows us to kind of handle the thing in a much better and more appropriate manner. So to me, it's it's about setting up our environment to allow us to not only have meaning and purpose, but also have that sense of security and support that gives us kind of the freedom to explore our performance instead of constraining us with this kind of fear of failure model. Yeah, that's such a, this, this is just so important. Um, because the purpose thing, Kate Shanafelt is a big name in the world of wellness and physicians. And one of the, one of the key articles that he wrote uh, was from the Mayo Clinic and, and the observation that if, if physicians are spending at, at least 20% of their time doing things that mean something that are meaningful to them, it could be whatever, whatever they like to do, you know, whatever provides purpose, that the rate of burnout goes down dramatically and very statistically significantly. And, and just to reiterate what you said, you know, purpose and finding that purpose, even in the midst of the jungle, you know, of challenges, uh, combined with community and support, you know, are so, so powerful. And I, I just like you to kind of highlight that again. I mean, I think it's just so crucial. Yeah. Per, you know, those things are essentially performance enhancers. Yeah. Performance and, enhancers. Yeah. You, you know, when there's all sorts of work that shows it, but essentially what happens is, you know, if we have that community and support, it essentially frees us up to perform because we know it's almost like the secure child, right? The secure child knows that he has mom and dad's love and support. Yes. Yeah. So he explores more. He tries different things or she tries different things. Like they're more confident. Why? Because they have that commute, that connection to someone who cares, loves, and supports for them. The same thing applies on a broader scale with our community and our sense of belonging. And then that purpose point, like there are all sorts of work that shows essentially if you have meaning and purpose in your job, that burnout goes down as, as you, as you alluded to, and we're able to like tap into more of our capacity and capabilities. And this, this goes as simple. Actually, there's a wonderful study that looked at essentially, uh, you know, the old school way to call them is janitors in a hospital. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they took these individuals who are cleaning up and they, they just, you know, gave them essential what was a pep talk in the study and said, hey, listen, you're not just a janitor. Like you are literally saving lives because if you keep this place clean, our physicians don't transmit germs, our patients don't transmit germs. And like, this is a major source of, you know, disease and death in, in the hospital. So you're literally, a, you know, at the foundation of allowing this place to function and work. And when they reframe that for these people, it increased a their job satisfaction and then decreased their burnout in in their performance. You know, when they looked at and I think it was a year later. So yes. even the way we kind of frame the work that we do, you know, matters. So I think, you know, connecting that to some connecting what you do to some sort of greater purpose or meaning is essential, especially essential. In, yeah. in the work that you guys do, which is literally helping people. Yeah. And boy, you know, I can imagine the janitors, uh, you know, with that sense and improved psychology around what they do. I mean, that translates into how it is at home also. I mean, that's, uh, you know, I, I always seek to remind us ourselves of the, 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 the intermingling of those two worlds and how profoundly they relate to each other. And really it, in some ways it's 
one and the same thing, in my opinion. Exactly. I think you're spot on there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, Steve, I I could go on here for hours with you digging into the weeds of this stuff. And that is no kidding. And uh, I, I just, I thank you again from the bottom of my heart for taking the time uh, to talk to our audience and give us your wisdom. And, and, and I, I would actually just note that that's what this book is about. It's about wisdom. It really is. And uh, your, your, and wisdom comes from experience and from thinking about things and learning and integrating all of that stuff. And, and you've got that uh, and you've made a massive contribution to the world with this, with this book and all of your work. So my kudos and, and, and a huge thank you to you again for all of your work. Well, I appreciate this. And and this was a phenomenal conversation. So I love having it. So uh, thanks a lot, Michael. And and Steve, where can people find find you if they want to reach out to you, talk about coaching, whatever, you know? Yeah, yeah, you can find me all on social media at Steve Magnus. And then uh, you can see everything that I do um, at stevemagnus.com. And of course, you can get the book wherever books are sold. Great. All right, Steve, again, thank you so much. This has been The Resilient Surgeon, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag BeYourBestSelf. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.